and welcome to Traeger Method Podcast, Episode 9. This is a very special episode. We are speaking today with the ultimate VIP in my life. You might call her the MVIP, the most very important person. She's had a greater influence on my life than any other person. I mean, hell, she made me. That's right. Today we are speaking with Mary Michaela Murphy, a.k.a. Michaela Mary Murphy, a.k.a. my mom. I won't even attempt to describe my feelings for her, how much I love her. She's my mom, for God's sake. It's infinite. It's eternal. She's a wonderful human being. Yeah, I'm not even going to attempt to, to put into words how much I love her. She's my mom. I will, however, tell you about the episode. We talk about her early years as a you know, young teenager growing up in post-war Germany, where my grandfather was stationed after the war. She talks about hitting an actual Nazi with a broom. We talk about her experiences in Jim, the Jim Crow South in the late 50s, early 60s. A little bit about that. We go into her memories of chaperoning me when I was 13, 14 uh, at punk shows. She talks about what that was like for her, from her perspective. Very funny, very interesting. We go on to talk about her career as a librarian for many years her political awakening as a first wave feminist, um, as a, her spiritual awakening, her move away from the Catholic church. She was raised in that tradition, finding her own path. And from there we go into very, um, intimate talk about, um, some of the most profound experiences, um, she's had in life than when some that we've shared death, life, birth, we've, we've experienced it all. It's a deep, meaningful, funny, wonderful, good, solid conversation. I think you'll get something out of it. I know I got something out of doing it. I think, I hope mom enjoyed it. I'm sure she did. I know she did. She said she did. So I'm looking forward to you looking forward to me, looking forward to you listening to my conversation with my mom, Kayla Mary Murphy. Hello, Mother. How are you? I'm good, Jace. How about you? Good. So you told me the other day that you saw Elvis perform in Germany when you were young. How old were you when you saw Elvis? About 13. What were you doing in Germany? Oh, my dad was the commanding officer of a battalion there. And uh, that's where we lived. What year would this have been? Do you know? You know, it must have been in the early 50s. Um, But I don't, you know, being 13, it's hard to, you know, I'm really vague about how I came to be there. It must have been a friend that had heard, you know, it was a big deal. I didn't really know who he was or anything. Right. And, uh, you know, and my dad wasn't too happy when he found out I had gone, but my mom knew about it. So, you know, kind of sneaked it by him. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like living in post-war Germany? It was like 10 years after or less than 10 years after the war was over. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that it, it was, what can I say? It was really a different experience because we lived in the German neighborhood and a lot of the Germans weren't too happy, especially the older generations. They weren't too happy with us being there and they kind of glared at us, but there wasn't too many people that there weren't too many people that were overtly hostile. I think everybody was just worn out from the war and uh, we had suitcases under our beds that we were supposed to be ready at a moment's notice to get out of there, but nothing ever happened. Why would you, why were you ready to get out of there? You know, I, I don't know, really the war was over, but maybe they thought there would be some problem. I, I have no idea. 13 years old. I was, you know, ready to bug oblivious, out. <laughs> oblivious to all that, you know, 
I played with German kids and they were friendly. One of them was this boy who was, his mother was English and his father was German. And uh, so he could speak English and I could speak rudimentary German. And it was just interesting to hear his, what his experience had been of the war. That was really interesting because, uh, you know, they were bombed. It was a Schweinfurt, Germany, and it was bombed heavily because it was a ball bearing factory town. And he, he told me, you know, what it was like, you know, getting under a table and the sound of the, you know, I mean, he was really traumatized by it, but he didn't seem to have any bad feelings, but couldn't have been easy to be half English and half German. I'm sure. That, you know, did you get uh, any, did Germans ever do anything bad to you that were they mean to you ever? No, uh, except for the, the man that, uh, sicked his German shepherd on my cat deliberately to ki and killed her. Uh, That's pretty mean. <laughs> I think that was really mean. Unless he probably was an old Nazi and, you know, he felt he could get something back on us or something. You know, he opened, I think I told you that story before, but I, my cat was playing outside in the garden and he opened the wrought iron gate and let his dog off the leash and the dog went right for the kittens and my cat sacrificed herself for him. And I was just... I've never, I was just furious, you know, and I saw this happening and I ran out, hit the dog with a broom and hit the old man too. But he, uh, you know, he didn't seem to be, uh, what's the word? He would, he looked like he was evil, you know, to me, but I was 14 and I was furious and my poor cat was dead. So it was pretty sad. It's terrible. And then one of the German boys, whom I'm sure was, a, was gay, because uh, he was so, uh, sensitive type guy, you know, that's hard. Just sounds weird, doesn't it? But he came over and helped me bury the cat and everything. And he was very uh, nice to me. That's very sweet. Yeah, it was. But you were battling Nazis as actual Nazis as a 14 year old. That's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, we also had a burglar. That was the place that we had the burglar. And uh, so I was taking care of my brothers as a babysitter. You've heard the story. Mm, I don't know about the burglar, but there must have been a lot of desperate Germans at that time. Yeah, I'm sure that there were. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that I know who this kid was, but he had a mask on. Mm. So I was, I was, um, you know how you fool around as a kid, and I was laying on my parents' bed, and they lived on the second floor of this big house. And I was laying there, and we kids used to walk up this big uh, wooden staircase, and we knew where every creek was. And, you know, I heard a creek. And old houses, you know, they do that. And I was sort of fantasizing in my mind, you know, oh, what if somebody's walking up the stairs? I really didn't believe it. But then I heard that next creak. And I was like, well, what it, is that? And then it creaked again. And I knew somebody was coming up that stair because I had crept up there so many times trying not to make this. So I, that was the first time I've ever experienced this, you know, that part of me that's not scared of anything. I grabbed a hold of some kind of statuette that was there because the house was fully furnished and it had a big metal statue of a woman, I think. And I flung open the door of my parents' bedroom and there's a landing there, which faced the stair directly. And here's this burglar on the stairs. And, <laughs> and he had a mask. I screamed at him and brandished this thing and said, you get the hell out of here. <laughs> I, really the guy was just like ah and he turned around and ran I mean really it was so stupid in a way that I did that but uh, actually it's probably the best thing so then I I wasn't scared at all and I went you know after him I was chasing him and saw that he had come in through a basement window and then closed that and locked it and then I called my dad but uh you know that was a big deal all the police the military police were there and everything but uh I think that must have been, there were some kids there that played with us. And I think it must have been somehow related to those kids. I really do. But I, you know, they never caught anybody. But yeah. I felt sorry for that family because this boy, they had told me that his sister was a prostitute. And so, you know, that they weren't a, they were a family who were in dire straits. So, you know, I don't think I was really that in that much danger, but but it was, a, you know, it was one of those experiences where afterwards you're just shaking. But at the time, you're not afraid at all. Pure I adrenaline. I was furious. Yeah. Yeah. Because my brothers were sleeping there, you know. 
Yeah, so that was Germany. And Germany was, I love Germany. It was beautiful. And, uh, you know, most of the people, nobody was ever overtly mean to us, you know, because they just weren't. But they would stare at your shoes and (laughs) it was just odd. You know, maybe we looked outlandish to them or, you know, I don't know. But uh, you brought Elvis. That's pretty outlandish. Yeah, that was. Of course, they probably didn't know anything about that, right? You know, we didn't have television. We didn't have any, uh, I, don't, I don't think we had radio. Or we must have had a record player, but, you know, I don't remember. I didn't see a TV till we got back in the States when I was about 15, 14, 15. Where did you arrive in the States when you got back? I mean, where, was, where did you live? Well, we, can't, we, we took a, a boat back, but we lived first in Virginia. We came into New York and stayed there, you know, briefly. And then we went to Virginia. Didn't you say something to me that you saw teddy boys when you were in Europe? Well, that was on the boat, actually, on the SS United States. There were, um, you know, the teenagers all gravitated to each other. And there was there were boys there who had these shoulder pads and this certain kind of look, you know, the teddy boy look. And I had never really seen that before. And I this boy was obviously quite proud of his ensemble, you know, and I was like, well, and they were English, you know, <laughs> I talked to him. Yeah. I thought they were interesting. Yeah. It's the original teenage subculture. Was it? Yeah. I mean, it's the original, like kind of, you know, they're not, they weren't boomers. I mean, they're your generation one before the boomers, but that was like really the first kind of teenage rock and roll subculture that had a look and a sound and all that of any, you know, really, because rock yeah. and roll is when it started, you know? Yeah. I never really knew, uh, you know, to because I hadn't really been exposed to that kind of music, I didn't really know except that it was really distinctive look. Yeah. And the kid had a really pretty heavy accent, but they had to be fairly well to do to be traveling on that boat, you know? Right. But uh, I, I can't remember his name or anything, but yeah. I was just, and there were two of them. So maybe they were in the same family, but I was Couple like, wow. Tets. That's pretty cool. When you got back to the States, were there like greasers at your schools? I mean, did you go to Catholic schools or were they military schools or, or public? Or no, or, or? I, uh, I, I went to public schools and um, I went to a junior high because that's how old I was. And that was a, a um, it was across, it was close to the army base where I lived but you had to walk across a trestle or else take a school bus to get there. And it was a small school, which was integrated. We had black kids there and I didn't really realize that that was unusual. Um, I think I've told you before about the, the nuns didn't, the black kids just were with us and they were taught the same as everyone else, which they should have been, but they weren't permitted to go into the public playground. The school didn't have a, a play yard. And uh, I discovered that because I noticed after being there for about a week that they never came on the playground. And I, I asked the other white kids, why aren't they playing? And they said, well, they can't because it's whites only. And, uh, and so I, I just was so appalled by that. I, I remember that's the first time I really felt race, the effects of racism, you know, just blatant. So I just didn't play in the playground. And everybody thought I was weird, really weird, I'm sure. But you know, I would rather read a book or, or, you know, talk with the black kids than go in that playground because it's not right. It wasn't right. I had a really strong sense of that, even as a kid, you know. So this was like Jim Crow South where was, everything was totally segregated. Oh, yeah. No, restaurant. Yeah. The library, you know, drinking fountains. I mean, we, you know, that was interesting because that was... Virginia. And we had lived in Georgia when I was a kid and things were completely segregated then. And we had a young African-American woman that lived with us during the week. She had her own room and she worked, but my mother never felt comfortable with servants or the idea of a servant. So my mother would always work with whoever we had helping because we had a helper in Germany, a German woman that lived with us and her, her son would come on holidays. She sent him to a private school And he would come on holidays and be at our house. But my mother always said, you know, I'm not comfortable with sitting around while someone else does the work. So that's kind of how I was growing up. You know, I I was taught, you know, yes, someone's helping you and you're paying them, but you should do stuff too. So that's how it was. 
Yeah, I mean, being a military family, you probably were much more progressive on those things than the the well, certainly than the population in the South. That's for sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I used to go down on Friday night before Valdora was the woman that lived with us before she would be getting you know getting ready to go on a date, and she'd be curling her hair. She had curling irons, and she was just so nice, and I just loved to see what she was up to, you know, and sometimes she would take me with her into the black part of the, of the, you know, I guess I'm not sure exactly, but everybody was black there right at the time. They were always very nice to me because I was a kid and I wasn't, you know, going to, I guess they felt safe from me. I mean, it was so awful to see that. So we're all like the white kids you went to school with, were they all super racist or, I mean, just, is that just yeah, a general a, default setting? You know, it, I'm sh- I, I couldn't say that they were all super racist because the races didn't mix. Yeah. I mean, there yeah. were no black kids at school and they didn't, you know, they thought I was weird because if they, if what they'd see me saying hi to, you know, <laughs> kids that I had gone to junior high with, which I did, they'd all give me a funny look like what the, but I, I got away with it because I was um, well-liked, you know, and popular, I guess you'd say from the standpoint of, people, you know, I was a homeroom representative and my boyfriend was really cool and all that stuff. Yeah. And so they just saw like, oh, she's, she's a little weird, but you know, they never said anything to me about it. Yeah. But I knew I was different for sure. You know? Yeah. No, I never heard anybody. The only time I even heard the N word was when somebody who really liked black music mm-hmm. said something to me about, oh, it's your music. And I remember thinking, oh, and I said, you know, that's not, that's not the right thing to say, you know? What music was he talking about? Do you remember who the artist was or? Oh, he was really into uh, black music and he's, he's the one who gave me little Richard and the Imperials. Oh yeah. Little Anthony and the Imperials. Oh, little Anthony. That's right. And, and little Richard too. Oh, little Richard. Yeah. Both, both the littles. <laughs> but little Anthony and the Imperials. Yeah. So he had a big, big record collection and he really liked the music. So did you ever go see shows when we lived in the South, like concerts no. or dances or anything? Nothing like that. No live music. Oh, we all, we had dances. We had a, a teenage club, which sounds really weird, doesn't it? But there was always an adult around there, but of course, you know, kids, but uh, yeah, we had dances all the time. Would they be yeah. live bands or would it be spinning records? Mostly records. Mm-hmm. And we used to watch American bandstand, right? Sure. And and they'd have the latest steps, you know, and then we'd all dance, you know. Yeah. That was pretty fun. Speaking of live shows, you accompanied me. You were kind enough to take me to my first punk shows. What were your impressions of, like, going to see the Circle Jerks uh, in 1982? Well, you know, you and, and your friend, uh, um, Eric Bittman, you yeah. both wanted to go to this show. And I was like, you know... I'm not going to stay home and worry about what's happening to you. So if you go, I'm going too. And you're like, okay, okay. So, that's the deal. <laughs> what should I wear? You know, you said, well, wear, you know, casual clothes and wear um, boots. <laughs> you told me to wear boots. <laughs> so anyway, so I went, but, um, and it was just really interesting. The main thing, the first part, the part that I find the most heartwarming really about and isn't that weird that I use that word about a punk show you had you and uh, Eric were talking to some other people and I was just sort of watching everybody because you know really colorful uh characters there (laughs) everybody was dressed and I was leaning up against the wall and I saw those um this great big guy and he had on no shirt but a, a vest and jeans, and then he had a smaller guy with him, and they were kind of covered with tattoos. And they were standing there, and uh, they were looking at me. And I thought, oh, my, you know, now what? And they started coming over, and I was like, okay. And they said, uh, the big guy says, well, do you feel safer leaning against with your back against the wall? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, do you, do you? And he says, he laughed. He's, and they said, well, we just came from an AA meeting and we wanted to see what this is all about. And I said, well, I've never been to one of these uh, before, you know, but they said, well, I, we're going to check on you all night and make sure you're okay. 
So all night, these guys would stop by. And of course, to me, it was a deafening sound. You know, my ears were just like, oh, why didn't I wear earplugs? <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that was the thing I remember the most. But but also that sheer energy and that you could feel that music in your bones. You know, I mean, it was just no part of your body could not be involved in that music. And I was really impressed just simply because of the energy and uh, yeah, I knew that bad stuff would go on, you know, with drug use or whatever. But you had you had calmed my fears by telling me about the whole thing about the straight edge and that you, you know, I had confidence that you were, would make good judgments and you'd be able to take care of yourself, you know, so that you didn't get a fight or anything. But, you know, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it was a trip, really. I enjoyed it. Um, do you remember, like, we went and saw, <clears throat> I remember... I think it was X that you you really enjoyed the music oh, too because you thought it sort of sounded like fifties music. I yeah, I think so. And and uh, she was incredible. You know, she was a great performer, and everybody was. Uh, and I liked that music. I really liked her. Like that group was my favorite. Really, that that I saw, well, such energy that people have, and you know, well, you understand. I understood the feeling that people were expressing really. Yeah. Um, I think those guys that were talking to you must have been like bikers or something like who had been because they weren't they had said that they weren't like they were checking it out and and describing like a guy with like no shirt and like a leather vest and tattoos. That sounds much more because there weren't a lot of people with tattoos like punks back then, you know, Um, but I think it makes me think like they were probably curious I don't know, recovering alcoholic bikers or something like that. Yeah, I think they were. And uh, and they were they were not high, you know. I mean, yeah. they were present, and uh, they went in right after me. And you know how they frisked everybody at the door, and so they were frisking people automatically. And this made me laugh because when I got there, this guy was putting his hands up. <laughs> he looked at me and he said, "Oh, go on in." <laughs> you didn't get frisked. I'm not going to frisk somebody's mother. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> oh, uh, darn. Jesus, my one chance to get frizzed. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. funny. It was it was fun. It was really interesting. And I didn't, you know, I've been to rock concerts where I felt more um less safe than I did at the punk concerts. So maybe because I had my bodyguards, but you know, <laughs> you know. I can't say that. It was, um, I can't say that I saw anything there that I hadn't seen at a rock concert, except um, maybe, maybe more action. Slam dancing. Yeah, slam dancing. Exactly. Yeah, there was no slam dancing anywhere else at that time, but punk shows. And that's the kind of thing that a lot of people, you know, it was kind of portrayed as very cartoonish and and extremely violent on TV and things like that. But the reality of it was, you know, much, especially in Seattle. I mean, if you had gone to shows in San Diego, you would have seen real violence. But, you know, in Seattle, it was mostly just aggressive dancing, you know. Well, the other thing, you know, you know, as um, these exercises that they have in encounter group sort of things where you you fall, let yourself fall backward and people will catch you if you yeah. can trust. Trust falls. Yes, trust falls. Well, that's kind of how I felt about the slam dancing, because people would take this leap of faith that they were going to get caught when they did that. And, and I just saw them get caught. So that kind of made me feel better about it. You know, Like stage diving, you mean? Yeah. When they would just jump off and, and they'd be caught. People didn't let them land on the floor, which I guess can happen. Right. But, uh, yeah. And like a well-functioning slam dance, you know, floor is like kind of a one big trust fall because you're kind of counting on like, nobody knocking you out, you know, if yeah. you're, but, but you can hit just hard enough. It's almost like a real trend. I've never thought about it that way that it's yeah. kind of, you know, when, when they function well, it really is sort of a trust fall situation where, you know, and also in Seattle, if you did fall down, people were always very quick to scoop you, Pick up. you up. Yeah. I mean, so I didn't really, you know, I guess because I didn't see the punk scene, you know, firsthand in San Diego, I just had Seattle in my mind and, 
you know, it was amazing. It was an amazing thing to yeah, see. You saw, you saw some really great shows. I mean, like, you know, some of the people listening to this might have you know, come of age in a latter punk time, but like, and so the lineups you saw, like, you know, seeing Fear in 1982 and TSOL and the Circle Jerks and X, like, those are bands that a lot of younger punks now would kill to see in that era, you know, in a uh, very intimate setting like that. Yeah, I guess so. So, I, I mean, I feel fortunate to have had that experience, really. I remember you told me once when you were working at the community college library that you were talking with some younger punker and you started sort of naming off like bands you had seen in the early eighties and this, this, Kid was. Did, did you tell a story like that? Well, yeah, I, I kind of remember that too. She was, her jaw like, was on the floor, like the librarian at my school has seen more cool punk shows. Yeah, I I did have that experience. That was interesting. They were like, really? And um, then I told them that you know we had had them, um, you know, raw power at our house, and they're like, what? I mean, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> What was your impression of that? Because you also, you hosted like, um, you know, who who stayed our house, Youth of Today, Seven Seconds, Raw Power, Verbal Assault, uh, guys from Ill Repute. What was your impression of hosting, I mean, Raw Power, we hosted for like a week, right? Yeah. Well, what I was got your to impression know them. of that? Well, I got to know them better than anyone else, of course, because I stayed for a week because they get, some of them had gone to Mexico and couldn't get back. But uh the first time you asked us if somebody could stay over, I said, well, yes, but they can't be doing drugs in our house. So use your judgment. If you feel like they're, um, you want to bring them home and they're safe to bring. Yeah. So anyway, you have, you had said something about some Finnish band or some, I don't know if you remember, remember this. And I said, okay. So I heard um, you were quiet when you all came home, but I knew you were there. So in the morning I got up and, tiptoed into the living room and here's all of these kids to me kids young men uh sleeping and they were all olive skin dark hair people <laughs> like uh so I went back and told Tom your stepdad I said Tom you know they're the band is here but I don't think they're Finnish <laughs> it's like five guys with like curly black hair <laughs> yeah. yeah they were they were really nice boys and I really enjoyed them. And a couple of them could speak some English. So that was good. And then when they, when they were stuck, you know, um, prolonging their stay because of the border problem, then I would cook Italian food for them and we would drink Chianti. And I learned to really like Chianti. And they said it was the best food they had outside of Italy, which probably wasn't true, but made me feel good they were really for, for an irish woman you make really good italian food i will say oh, so thank you. they might not have been lying oh good well i hope not <laughs> they better not yeah um i remember did you go with us to like the gelato place we started going to that gelato place every day we'd walk there because the, the the people there gave us free gelato because they were so impressed that this italian band was was hanging out <laughs> in, in the neighborhood for for, for so long I think we did go there once. I know you guys went a lot to, and uh, I'd never really had gelato before because I'm not a big ice cream eater, but I really like that better than ice cream. Yeah. But they were, they were charming and, uh, you know, I, I really liked all of them. Yeah, feminist consciousness and and quote unquote well, radical politics began. I think it began uh, with the military lifestyle because my dad was gone often and sometimes for a long time, and my mother was really uh, independent and uh, you know didn't she wasn't fearful of things she didn't feel subservient and. Uh, and my dad was really strict, but she would draw the line with him. Like I remember 
him uh, correcting my table manners when I was about 14 and being so upset about it because he was, I'm sure my dad was under a lot of pressure, you know, but uh, leaving the table in tears and all that. And my mother coming to find me and saying, you know, your dad's not doing that anymore. And she drew the line with my dad. She told him, uh, you know, you're not, you're not going to talk to your daughter like that anymore. And, uh, and I remember that making an impression on me because I thought nobody can treat you, even if they're, I don't care what their problem is, they can't treat you like you're not um, intelligent or you don't have a will of your own or whatever. And I think maybe that might have been the beginning of that. Plus, moving all the time and seeing my mother being so resilient. Um, and then I, you know, I'd always been a reader. And when I was, uh, married, uh, you know, at 21, I would read. And I remember reading a book about the patriarchy and uh, they were talking about prehistory. And I remember finally it made sense to me why we had a patriarchal society and why things are set up, were set up the way they were and why people had these ideas it's to their benefit by people, I mean, men. And it made a huge change in my way of thinking. And I thought, okay, this makes sense. I see why now. That was a, you know, I, reading has always formed my thoughts. And I remember reading in those days when you were just an infant, I read, uh, what's her name? La Paix's book about the small planet. And she was talking about climate change, basically. And she was talking about the effect of, raising cows and you know and I remember thinking oh this is I can see where we're going you know with the world and and women are the you know we have to get power because men are not doing a very good job of things and so I think that's where I formed that idea and uh you know I've always been out outspoken but not uh I can't say that I was militant but, you know, Gloria Steinem and other people, they were militant for me and they helped to open doors. And I hope I've led by example in my career, you know, to help other women to, to realize that they're only limited by what they think they are, not what men think. Right. You know? Well, you were a librarian for how many years? Oh, gosh. Uh, I got my degree in 73 and I retired about 10 years ago, I think. So a long sense. career. And you 40 think of years, how, I suppose. Think of how many people you directed towards information that might have liberated their minds. I sure hope I was able to do that a lot. I know some people, you know, have been kind enough to come back and say I've made a difference. But just the, giving people the, the tools to think critically about things is, is, you know, I keep, you know, you know, you think about your life and you think, well, you know, on the balance sheet, have I done enough? And I always, I always have that as a, now that I'm older, I don't do it. I don't participate like I used to. Of course, with COVID, I can't participate. Yeah, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> and Staying, staying think, alive is a plenty of a contribution at this point. Yeah, I think, um, I hope it was helpful because honestly, things would happen in a community college setting I would have one time I remember, this is typical, actually, the student came in, he had written a paper, he didn't have references for it. And he said, I've got to have references for my paper. And I said, okay, I said, usually you do it the other way, you get your sources, and then you write your paper. But you know, okay, so what's your topic? And this guy has got some kind of thing about Obama death camps or some darn, you know, Bullshit. Bullshit. Conspiracy theories. <laughs> yeah, I was basically that. And uh, and I said, okay, well, here's how you approach the world of knowledge. You know, here's where you go. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to do it for you, but I'm going to show you how to do it. So the kid worked. And he says, well, I can't find anything. And so I said, well, let's try this. So anyway, I spent so much time with that kid. And uh, his girlfriend, let, she was there with him. She finally, she said, oh, this is ridiculous. She left. So we're working. And finally, he's like, I can't find anything about this. We've looked here, here, and here. And I said, well, why do you think that would be? <laughs> and, 
And the, the look on this guy's face was, well, maybe it's not true. Huh, you think? I remember just being jubilant, but I didn't say that. And I said, well, that could be. So maybe you know, now we maybe. just need now we just need you to work on about 20 million other QAnon followers and then the world will be a better place. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't maybe think that's I the problem. None of them are going to the library. They're all just sitting at home alone with the computer. You know, you know, I think that's part of it, because, you know, I remember even in the academic world, this one person saying, well, why do we need books anymore? Why do we need, you know, what do we need libraries for? You just get on the inter- you know, internet, you look around, blah, blah. And I thought, you know, yeah, but you're not finding, you're, you're missing so much. You're missing the real stuff because you don't know how to look. And so, you know, it's. And you it's, don't have someone like you with, you know, decades of experience and understanding and the, the ability yeah. to, you know, turn people onto sources and methods. Yeah. That kind of worries me. You know, I, uh, I've, I feel badly about it. And now with COVID, the libraries are not open as much as they were. You don't have direct contact with librarians like you used to. I mean, you have to use the phone or, you know, it's just, um, it's too bad because I think we're going to be, we're going to be losing a lot. Yeah. You know? Oh, well. Yeah. It's a, it's a cycle. You're not in charge of it. And it probably will turn out all right in the end. And that's what I tell myself. We can hope. You were raised, I wasn't raised Catholic. I mean, I was baptized, right? But I never confirmed. And you left the church. You were raised Catholic, though, your entire childhood and upbringing. What led you to leave the church when you did? And what was that your spiritual path about? Yeah, well, you know, I've always... um, I've always, always been concerned. What is it all about? And, you know, what is our purpose here? And how do, how is it that we, we live? And how is it we die? And why, you know, just the why of everything. And I remember being a, going to Catholic schools at different times in my life and learning my catechism, which is like a rote memory thing. They ask you questions and you answer automatically, you know, that sort of thing. And I remember asking questions in the Catholic schools. I say, well, how could this be? How, this, this, this isn't feasible, you know, even like a literal interpretation of the ark, you know. So nobody can build a boat that can, you know, where would you get animals from all over? You know, it doesn't make any sense. And getting in trouble and going home to my mother and saying, you know, I got in trouble today because I asked this question. And my mother saying, oh, well, just don't pay any attention to that. You know, like, so, so even though she was born and raised Catholic and my father's mother was convert, right? So she didn't, she wasn't, you know, um, she raised the kids Catholic because that was her agreement with her older husband, you know, but um, so they weren't really indoctrinated. So I, I used to go to like Catholic youth organization because I didn't go to Catholic school. I went to that. And it was just the biggest waste of time, you know, just the biggest waste of time. It just didn't make any sense to me. So when I graduated from high school, I decided that I would study philosophy and religion. And I'd like to find out what other people believe. And um, because when I, well, I should back up. I remember being a senior and looking at Mormonism, um, all the religions that were formed at that time period and other things and examining their beliefs and uh, <laughs> deciding that what what they held, all those religions had some good things about them, but they also had all kinds of dogma and uh, rules and that sort of thing. And I just thought, this is just as crazy as a Catholic thing. So, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So I, w- I went to uh, Seattle U, which is uh, Jesuit. And the Jesuits teach you to think for yourself. And so I took all these religion and philosophy courses. And I learned that, you know, there are systems of thinking. And you set up your own system or you're brought into a system. And it has premises that are for, you know, already formed for you. And it, if you buy into it, then you, know, you have certain conclusions. And I just, you know, I thought it was really interesting to read about that and everything. But by the end of my... Uh, 
I say the first year of college, I thought, okay, well, you know, all these systems have their goods and bads and, you know, but I'm Catholic. So anyway, I, I continued with the church. And so after I was married, I was going to quit going. And a friend of mine who had gone to Seattle View with me said, oh, it's a sin of pride to, uh, to think that you know more than these other people on the church. And, and I said, okay, I'm going to give the church some of my time. And I, for a year, I took over the Women's Sodality, which is a women's support group, organized it, ran all the, you know, everything that, that needed to be done in the parish. And uh, then by the end of that, nothing had changed. The priest wasn't open to any changes that involved women. Women were still in a subservient handmaiden type of role. And I thought, okay, there's, there's no way that my efforts will make any difference in this organization. And so I told the priest that I'm not Catholic anymore. And he said, well, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. And I remember just <laughs> laughing and saying, well, that's your belief, but it's not mine. So that was the end of that. I don't need a religion to tell me what's right or wrong. You know, and then I think about how these things have pertained to you. Yeah, you, I did get, get you baptized. And though that time when I was really involved in the church, I would take um, little kids and I would, do you remember that? I would teach them about... I'd have a class, I'd have classes with these little preschoolers mm-hmm. at the church where we would go out and, and pick up things in nature and examine them and say that, you know, what God's role in, was with, them, with these acorns, for example, and how beautiful <laughs> they are and how they work and God made them, you know, and all of that stuff. And I thought, well, you know, I don't really know at this age I think it's all a mystery and it's, I have, I have ideas about how things are organized, but, um, and I have certain beliefs and we had that experience with dad that really formed my, the core of my, you know, talking about religion and belief. You're talking about when we were together at the bedside of your dad, when he died. Yeah, I am. And, uh, that just changed a whole lot for me. I mean, that solidified my, feelings and my belief that we go on. I mean, I know we go on and in whatever form, you know, I know we do because I've experienced him leaving as you have. And uh, why don't you uh, briefly, you know, describe to whatever degree you want to that, that experience. Well, I'll do it's it. okay. If you cry. Oh, I, I'm going to try not to be, well, I'm not going <laughs> to try. I'm just going to let it be. I, no, wait, my dad had, uh, you know, been ill and I had been staying with them and had just gone home to San Diego and uh, got a call that he was in a coma. So I flew back and you came and, you know, it was a long, he was unconscious and uh, he opened his eyes when I got there and everybody said, look at that. He, he's a, he, he heard you. But anyway, we were sitting with him and uh, it was the middle of the night and everybody else had gone to sleep. And, uh, you know, I had learned these kind of, oh, I don't know what they call them, the the Buddhist uh, thing, you know, chant, not chants, but mantras, mantras to talk to dad. And I, and I was just talking to him about it and telling him, you know, that it was okay and to relax and that we'd take care of each other and all of those things. And then uh, as it happens, he began to, to die and you could tell because of the sound of that monitor where it right, changed. The heart monitor, right? The beat. Yeah. Remember? And it started changing and it was going down and I knew something was going to happen. And you and I were both with him holding his hand and he became conscious. Do you call that? Oh yeah. I mean, I'll never forget. It was incredible. And his eyes were just wide open and he was looking at us and he looked like, a child. Yeah. You know, I just, it was so, yeah, it was so wonderful. And relax. And he opened his, he opened his eyes and he smiled. And as he did that, I could feel in my hand, I could feel this, 
energy. I get to feel him moving up my arm and through my chest and up through the top of my head. electrical yeah it was just i remember that feeling i had the same feeling where my the hair just stood on end yeah you know like like i felt like my hair was lifting in the in the air you know that's that word i i've never known anything that was inevitable except except for that and uh, you and i looked at each other and we were just like you know, he was gone, but he, he was, we were wired and yeah. it was like on, not on fire, but just that hair raising experience. And, uh, it just, it was like love. There was that thing too. It wasn't yeah. just that his spirit, but there was that feeling of love. Yeah. That was and, so beautiful. And so pure, you know, and, so happy and so childlike yeah yeah it's just like a happy child it reminded me also of uh, and remember the movie close encounters like when the the spaceship opened up and the the big alien comes out and he's got that because grandpa's head also was you know roundish and and he was gaunt from his cancer oh yeah and he had almost that alien look you know with the skin slightly taut on his face and stuff but uh at the moment of departure, the way his eyes just glowed with that supernatural kind of spiritual glow, it was unbelievable, yeah. you know. It was, it was, yeah, it was amazing. It really was. And mm-hmm. after you experienced that, you, you, you know, it wasn't imagination, you know, you no. know what happened and you know what we did. And I, I don't know where they are, but I know they're downstairs. I asked you if you would write down your experience right? and I would write mine and then we would just put them aside. And, uh, and, and they were, they were identical experiences. We both had that same thing. So, I mean, what better gift can a parent give their kid, you know? Oh no, absolutely. That was the best. I also remember, I, I don't think you were with me, but um, as we were doing the night watch that night, I yeah. walked I walked out into the parking lot and this was in the summertime. And yeah. it was, you know, I don't know, three in the morning, four in the morning. Yeah. And the parking yeah. lot was completely quiet. And I, another part of that whole arc of that night was so, so amazing was when I was out in the parking lot and I just saw the most spectacular shooting star just rip across the sky, just leaving a silver trail, perfect sparks, all the way across the skyline. And oh. I mean, I, I knew at that moment he was going to leave us that night. You know, it was no question. I was just, you know, watching, I've never seen one single shooting star, just perfect line across the horizon, just rip across the night sky. Yeah, I and didn't see that, but that sounded, you told me. Uh, as soon as I walked back in, I was like, uh, I think this is going to happen tonight because I just saw the most incredible. Yeah. You felt it. It was Until, all part of that. That that that's that's. I one of the things I remember waiting, you know, sitting there, is all of those robins. There oh, were yeah. so many birds, robins, just chirping and chirping out there, and it was pitch dark. Right. It wasn't dawn, and I thought, well, you know, that that's that whole Greek thing of the psychopomps. Right. They they come to take the soul. And I wonder if there's an element of, you know, maybe animals are, well, you know, I know animals sense that, you know, for sure in each other and in people. So, you know, I was quite a night, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite a. Yeah, and that's I, one that stays with you. Forever. You know, and I, I hope to have that with my mother, but it didn't go that way at all. And that that's fine. You know, it wasn't necessary. 
Yeah. But we were still <laughs> with her. We were there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But I didn't I didn't really feel her. So I think she was gone before she actually the body stopped working. And, I think so. I yeah. think she was just uh you know, clicked her heels and took <laughs> off and she was ready to go big time. But yeah, that was that, beautiful though, how we got to be with the body and and uh carry yeah. her out in the cardboard coffin, you know, and, and oh. she, I mean, I, I was just listening to a thing the other day about modern ways of looking at death and treating the body and things like that. And, and it made yeah. me feel really good that we had kind of a jump on that with her, the present. Isn't, isn't that the way it should be? I mean, really, you need to be creative in how you approach things and what, and uh, this is kind of a serious conversation. <laughs> it's a good, it's great. It's exactly what I think, you know, part of what, when I started doing this podcast, I thought, you know, there's so many podcasts and conversations about everything, you know, I mean, there's just, there's literally, there's just so many, it's a, such an open technology, which is fine. It's great. But I was like, you know, for mine, I want it to be about what's beneath the surface and about stories about people's lives, you know, uh, yeah motivations and yeah what what is what are you know i'm focusing right now on you know friends the people i'm closest to have had the longest the most impact on my life over um the longest period that's where I, who i'm kind of beginning with and i'll talk to people that i've just met and things but along the way but starting with yeah. the core people and really talking because i've been thinking so much about that about you know what makes life worth living and ultimately for me it just comes down to the people that you love and who love you. There's really nothing else to it. Well, there's nothing else that's really important. No. A lot of people think, you know, they've fooled themselves into thinking that money and, uh, you know, other things that change quickly and, you know, that all of your status is important, you know, all of that stuff. But really none of that's important. So, yeah. there you have it. My conversation with my mom. I feel privileged that she came on the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We'll be back next Monday with a new episode, episode 10 of Trigger Method Podcast, where I'll be talking with Lord Shanty, aka Old Man Andy, aka OMA, hashtag OMA. There's not that many 60-year-olds that I know who shred backyard swimming pools with his skateboard. Um, Andy is one of those people. He's had more head injuries than an incompetent MMA fighter. And yet, through it all, he has maintained a lockbox memory for all things Southern California punk. He's a force of nature. He's an amazing human being. You're in for a real treat this Monday episode 10 with Lord Shanty. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you then.